0: From a recording at the end of the 19th century, Enrico Caruso sings for RCA the aria from Pagliacci. Ricatar mentri presso dal delirio. Act. Act while in delirium. I no longer know what I say or what I do, and yet it's necessary. Make an effort. Bah! are you not a man? You are a clown. Put on your costume, powder your face. The people pay to be here, and they want to laugh. And if a harlequin shall steal your columbina, laugh, clown, so crowd will cheer. Turn your distress and tears into jests, your pain and sobbing into a funny face. Laugh, clown. At your broken love laugh at the grief that poisons your heart.
1: Mm-hmm. The poor
0: State Banner, 2nd April 1896. The spectacle of a middle aged man rushing along the avenues, pursued by a mob of howling, jeering schoolboys who hurled tin cans, sticks, and other missiles at him, was witnessed by scores of indignant citizens at East Superior in Chicago. The boisterous mob was reinforced at every corner by urchins of all sizes and descriptions. There were perhaps one hundred in the crowd. The fleeing man was pelted unmercifully in all directions. Finally, he rushed into a private residence and the crowd dispersed. The man was a resident of West Superior, sometimes called Simple Joe. He had been to church at the East End, and when leaving, was attacked. Topping the Bill The handbills that the boy handed to the men as they staggered out of the saloon were identical to the advertisement in the newspaper which had printed the handbills. The celebrated Mr. Kite performs his feats on Saturday at the local lake. The Hendersons will dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring. Don't be late. Messrs. K. and H. assure the public their production will be second to none. And, of course, Henry the Horse dances the waltz. The band begins at ten to six when Mr. K performs his trick without a sound, and Mr. H will demonstrate ten... something. He'll undertake on solid ground. Having been some days in preparation, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. What things... What ten things Mr. H. will undertake was not clear to the reading of the handbill because the ink was still wet when the boy took them from the newspaper office and brought them to the streets. It was smudged by his thumb as he passed them out. It could have read some squats or some swats or some spits, or you could only guess what. But by itself, not to mention a waltzing horse, it was a great draw for a crowd, drunk or sober. This can explain the public riot that ensued when, because Mr. H. had twisted his back and could not do his demonstration, and Henry the Horse was in fact a seedy mule named Stella, who did not dance so much as sullenly shuffle to a polka, Played off-key by a small Polish band, everyone was so disappointed that Mr. Kite was not allowed to perform his trick without a sound, but was chased by a noisy, angry mob out of town and into the woods. This may have been the end of Mr. Kite's career in show business, except that he met Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd was in the middle of the woods taking his supper when Mr. Kite came crashing like a pachyderm through the brush, and upon seeing the short, fat man cooking his rabbit on a stick, he made a double-take, as if first to run in further fright, but then paused and squinted at Mr. Boyd, who was appraising his torn clothing and scratches on his face determined that this was a fellow man in want of compassion, and so he said, Sir, you look like the hounds of hell pursue you. Take no fright of me, I am but a poor man of the boards, a moth of the footlights, abject attic of grease paint, a gentle clown. I would not harm you if I had a slapstick, my sorry fellow. Sit. Sit and take refuge by my humble fire. Do you like roasted rabbit? Mr. Kite was hungry, and with a courteous and affected vow, appropriate to kindred of the theatre, took the roasted rabbit proffered to him and ate it standing and looking about and listening for his enemies. Mr. Boyd nodded his appreciation, He surmised at once, a fellow traveller, a thespian, I perceive. Do you magic or song? Does Shakespeare shake you, or are you inclined to tumbling? Mr. Kite tossed the quickly-eaten carcass of the rabbit on the stick into the brush and said, You are a gentleman. I am in your debt, but I should very much deny the profession of which you speak. "'I know such men are scoundrels.' "'Then am I,' said Boyd. "'Oh, no, sir, I do not mean,' said Mr. Kite. "'Well, I can see that some remorse distresses you. "'If you would like, sit beside me and repair yourself. "'I cannot heal, but I can listen. "'And as my mother always said, "'a good heart makes a good life. "'I think that applies somehow. "'Have some coffee.' It followed as the night fell like a backdrop, and the stars came up like stage lights. Mr. Kite told his tale. Mr. Boyd, if he was not fully enthralled, seemed so much to be that Mr. Kite thought he had found a long-lost brother. Indeed he had, and it was Mr. Boyd who put it to him, affirming his suspicions with such penetrating and peculiarly precise and prescient questions as, Did your father lose his arm in the war to save the Union? And, Was not your mother a native of New Orleans? And, Did she not teach you to sing the song Dixie with the words, Oh, I wish I was in the land of cotton, cinnamon seed, and sandy bottom? Why, sir... "'You astound me,' Mr. Kite replied. "'She is my mother, too, and you are my brother,' said Mr. Boyd. "'And they embraced, and told each other stories about themselves "'and their shared mother and their different fathers. "'All night long they talked and never tired "'until the curtain came up on another day.' Now, which of these men was the elder to the other was always a matter of consternation that no one ever resolved, and the two brothers certainly never told, though certain it is that one had been born well after the other one had more or less grown up, and that one had found himself shipped off to an uncle in Michigan, his father's kin, where he found working on a farm so disagreeable that he soon ran off ragamuffin at age eleven. It must be the guiding force of nature, the magic beans of fate, which put both brothers on stage and before the footlights, to represent themselves larger than life with artful personas invented by themselves to amaze and amuse. Or perhaps it was Mama's inspiration, who had herself been on stage and showboats when she was young. Who knows these answers knows what babies dream. But here they were, an unlikely pair in the wilderness of America, found by one another like it was meant to be. They decided at once to take their fortune in common. They would join up, two as one. They shall sail to speedy success, on a fair wind of good luck, and the world shall be a better place. Brothers of theater, Mr. Boyd declared with tearful joy, and tonight Mr. Kite is topping the bill. With the wind to their back and a bright future before them, Mr. Boyd led Mr. Kite forth from the woods to the road of their new horizon. And portentous of that rising day, who should they immediately meet? The lame Mr. H., the forlorn Stella trudging, and in her tow the circus caravan in which Mr. Kite's properties had been miraculously preserved, and the Polish band lay asleep. Mr. H. was glad to see Mr. Kite, having feared for his life and limb, as a patch of the same mob chasing Mr. K had stayed to punish him with many blows, and he, being lame, could not escape them. But for an intruding lady or two that took courage to stand for him in their genteel compassion, he should have been beaten like an egg. Now here he is, and here too the three-piece Polish band whom they had hired. And here is Mr. Kite, and all is well. Mr. Kite explained his new companion, that he was his long-lost brother, of whom he had known nothing, and whom he had discovered in the woods upon his escape from the mob. This Mr. H. found uncanny, not only by the incredible coincidence but because the two alleged brothers looked nothing at all alike. Mr. Boyd being short and fat, and Mr. Kite being tall and skinny. Mr. Boyd eloquent and graceful in wit, while Mr. Kite clumsy and grave. Mr. Kite's enormous nose and cadaverous deep-set eyes solemnized his long, lean, skeletal frame, while Mr. Boyd's pug-nose and twinkling eyes celebrated his pink, plump congeniality. These differences were indeed so pronounced, so antithetical, so harshly disharmonious. But this strangeness between them, like the odd coincidence of their meeting, yet may seem a natural and inevitable convergence in our queer universe, an effulgent, climax of some purposeful truth, an efflorescence of important manifest intent. Mr. H. could see that it was meant to be, and the Polish man said nothing against it either. Mr. Boyd had large plans, and effusively expounded them. They would tour the free frontier, a merry troop earn their fame, and thence cast themselves bravely upon Chicago, where, winning wealth, they would launch themselves splendidly upon the seaboard, Mount Baltimore, storm Philadelphia, and vanquish New York. But Mr. H., who listened with painful winces, said he must decline. He would retire to Vermont and his widowed mother to aid and comfort her and for himself assume the respectable peace of old age. Pity, said Mr. Boyd. I have perceived in you a fine and once supple athlete, but for this, this hapless miscarriage, your tragic sacrileac. Great pity, and a great loss. Alas, so the lamentation of our poet laureate informs us, Come not, when I am dead, to drop thy foolish tears upon my grave, to trample round my fallen head and vex the unhappy dust thou wouldst not save. There let the wind sweep and the plover cry, but thou go by. I think that applies somehow, he added. Mr. H. blinked his eyes. With such elegiac pathos, They parted at the intersection to that highway where, to the south of them, lay land denuded and farmed and freshly civilized, and to the north stood the stately forests, the raw wilderness baited for enterprise. Mr. H. turned south toward Chicago, taking nothing with him, giving his portion of the circus caravan to Mr. Kite and the Polish band out of his fondness for all. His eyes welled with tears to say good-bye. Stella bore the brothers and the band sullenly northward to the first town in the new frontier, where Mr. Boyd said they should test their nascent diversion upon the rustics and see which matter shines to them. As it turned out, nothing did. Oh, the band would play, and it was well— but Mister Boyd was soon dismayed, to find his brother, though pleasantly contralto in his speech, could not hold a tune, sang like a squeaky gate, his harmonies befitting a cat in heat. Song was not his talent. But trying dance, while Mister Boyd was remarkably, even, mystifyingly light and charming, and able to sidle and bop like a minstrel, Mister Kite. "'fell on his face. "'This at least brought a laugh, "'but dance was not his talent. "'The band soon left them on account of their failure, "'for they were not earning anything but scorn "'and the rotten vegetables that were tossed upon them. "'The band took the caravan in the night, "'heaping Mr. Kite's belongings upon the ground. "'They could not be blamed for this. "'Prithee, my boon-brother, "'What was thy coy genius?' "'Maestro? "'Contortionist? "'Necromancer? "'How did you ever earn your living upon the boards?' "'asked Mr. Boyd. "'Mr. Kite admitted "'that Mr. H. had the better half of the act, "'even more full than a half, "'but that he possessed a special trick, "'which when performed during a certain interval "'between tunes of the band,' did make for the amazement of many mr boyd said this i must see bring forth the loaves and fishes let the fire dance upon my head the trick consisted of an illusion of levitation which mr kite showed convincingly and explained was a deception of lifting off one leg from the stage "'while raising himself on the tiptoe of the other. "'Usually the audience could not detect the falsity,' said he. "'Ah,' said Mr. Boyd. "'Ah,' he repeated. "'He saw that his brother was disheartened. "'He reached up and took his shoulders and said, "'Well, comedy it shall be. "'Clowns and fools are welcome as good wisdom.' More welcome than wisdom, I do believe, for wisdom often comes unwanted as advice, and advice like lice is easily shared but bites. But as the good book says, if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. I think that applies. He told his brother that he need not do anything more than be himself. For this purpose he chose to dress him even more morbidly than he already did dress, but exaggerated as if he were an undertaker, and to accent his pallor a puff of white face-powder. For himself, rouge to his cheeks, a little to his nose for the drunken Irishman he pretended, and dressed in a checkered suit and a rakish hat, he smoked a cigar on stage. While he paced and snaked around his brother, who gopped and seemed dithered to follow him, he spat out insults and wisecracks like bullets, tossed questions like errant balls into the air, which his brother naively and awkwardly tried to handle, only to be punched in the mug with an answer that made him a fool and made the audience laugh. It worked. And at the end of the act, after asking... One last question Mr. Boyd would turn from him, bend over, and aiming his rump at him, explode a great fart that caused him to stagger and killed the audience every time. They were a hit. They took the act from town to town, and everywhere it was a sensation. The fart became the signature of the act and Mr. Boyd decided to improve upon it, and so added volume and succulent reverberation and a great deal of noxious aroma. It really was staggering for Mr. Kite, so much that he was knocked off his feet. This really killed them. Their pay was doubled the first night that it happened, and after that they would perform only for a percentage of the house, They assumed a stage name. Mr. Boyd explained to his more serious brother, Use your name for contracts and deeds and sometimes marriages. Your stage name is for the billings and the bills. He proposed Mr. Even and Mr. Odd as a play upon the differences between them. But Mr. Kite resisted until it was decided that he was to be Mr. Even. For short, they were billed simply Even and Odd. Mr. Kite was still topping the bill. But he grew more and more petulant off stage. Mr. Boyd's good humor annoyed him then. He took all of his remarks for sarcasm and jokes at his expense, innocent or commonplace though they may be. Mr. Kite could not ask Mr. Boyd a question for fearing that it would bring a mocking rejoinder that cruelly made him look foolish. Most of all, it troubled him that Mr. Boyd got all the good laughs, that it was he that always got to fart at the end of the act. That Mr. Kite was always the silly stooge and the victim of the fart. Why can't I make the fart? Mr. Kite finally complained to Mr. Boyd. It wouldn't be funny, boyo, said Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd thought this decided, but Mr. Kite muttered to himself, I don't see why. As Mr. Kite's melancholy grew, his comedic effect improved. Mr. Boyd began to think that he had found his soul in the art, for he seemed to have difficulty disrobing his persona when off stage. There were times when a casual question such as, When shall we repast, my dear? was returned with a dramatic scowl and stinging silence. It perplexed him. It was tolerantly understood as the study of his craft. In those days, Mr. Boyd was only beginning to understand his brother. His brother, in the meantime, now harbored suspicions that they were not brothers, that he had been maliciously deceived, that such cosmic coincidence as their strange encounter and the fortuitous chance of their happy discovery was as remote as being twice born. "'as implausible as becoming a woman overnight. "'And in this suspicion he began to conceive an animosity. "'Careless of the reckless sabotage to his own theatrical success, "'he sought to know the truth of the fart, and to frustrate it. "'He looked through Mr. Boyd's costume, "'looking for bladders or tubes or devices of compressed gases, which could explain the volume the noise and the odor of the fart he found nothing but ordinary trousers ordinary coat might his brother secret it in his underwear he wondered and he fretted to scheme some means to try those garments and went sleepless several times to steal to his brother's bed and feel about his person for something untoward and found the result shaming and detestable. But still, he found nothing to explain the matter. He wondered then if it may be an engine inserted into his brother's nether, a machine or device in his rectum, which he activated somehow, as he tried to imagine. He could not, however, bring himself to test the hypothesis. He was in despair and prepared to abandon the theatrical act itself as the only salve to his wounds when his brother then exclaimed, "'We have received the royal summons at last. "'To the Chicago Opera House we're engaged, within the fortnight!' He must relent, of course, to their good fortune." He would tolerate at least this much more, but then no more, he said to himself. So they went to Chicago. His brother had evidently been in the great metropolis before and was completely at ease amongst its bustle and den and its huge buildings. But for Mr. Kite, stepping out of Union Station, the world flipped over skyscrapers more than ten stories high made him dizzy to lean back and look up at. And because it was the end of the business day, there were more people moving in this one street than ever he had seen in his entire lifetime altogether, and continuously changing in an ocean of moving people from one instance to the next, so that within a minute he had seen then three times as many, then six times, "'then more than he could ever hope to count or multiply. "'If a person could be killed by a flood of stimulation, "'this is where and how you'd do it to him.' "'Mr. Boyd hailed a cab "'and shoved the stunned Mr. Kite aboard, "'and they made toward the Great Lake "'and turned upon the corner "'where the Chicago Opera House itself stood, "'a magnificent block,' white as Christ in lights of electricity, and passed its luxurious entrance, then thronging with the well-dressed best of society. Mr. Kite tried to bring Mr. Boyd's attention to it, so excited he was, but Mr. Boyd looked away, and the cab turned toward the south side of Chicago. And after a dingy mile or two of continuous gloomy city, finally stopped before a block of taverns with empty shirtwaist factories above them and a small hotel without the lit signage they had seen in the wealthy districts. They stopped. Mr. Boyd assisted the driver to remove the luggage. This is rather far from the theater, commented Mr. Kite as the cab departed. Not at all, said Mr. Boyd. "'nodding across the street. "'There she be!' "'The new Alsatia,' read its dim letters, "'its electric signage just now flickering to life "'in the evening to lure its patrons. "'You said we were engaged at the opera house,' Mr. Kite protested. "'A manner of speaking,' said Mr. Boyd. manner of speaking.' For all of that, it was not a disappointment. Their guest room in the hotel had its own separate and private bathroom, which Mr. Kite had never seen. And he accommodated its bathtub that night and felt a wealthy and princely man. And the hotel made no demand upon the bill of fare for dinner at its restaurant that night but accepted them respectfully and courteously as they might accept gentlemen whose surety was without doubt. And when they went to the rehearsal on the following afternoon, they were given a tour of the theatre like celebrity, and shown a grand, capacious auditorium with gilded filigree and cupids upon the ceiling and gas-light candelabras borne by semi-nude statuettes of Grecian maidens in coves along the wall. And they were ushered into their own private dressing-room, upon which a placard displayed their stage names in script. Their opening night was intoxicating. Mr. Kite stood in the wing at stage right, fully costumed and made up from the very beginning of the show, though his act would not appear until after the interlude the sweeping sea of the audience, not only men, but men and wives, men and mistresses, crashed with conversation and boisterous racket. Wealth took the front of the house and in the balcony the working classes, waving long sausages and loaves and drinking beer out of buckets, spitting tobacco into near spittoons or onto the floor. An altercation near the door to the balcony which was already overcrowded, resulted in a violent row. A bucket of beer spilled off the balcony on top of the clients seated on main floor and laughter and uproar at the front of the house craning for a look. Mr. Kite watched every act and watched the crowd consume each act, a voluptuous feast, each act tossed alive and whole into the insatiable maw of the great beast. A beast that wanted and relished all that it got tumblers, dancers, singers, vignettes of Shakespeare's doleful leer, and bandied barbos of Beatrice and Benedict. An illusionist with the East Indian rope trick, which caused an enormous collective gasp. The charming, nubile Amy twins, whose dulcet duet was accompanied by their father's elegant soft shoe, and to close the first half, a rambunctious minstrel troupe of blackface sang and played southern ballads that most of the audience knew and sang along. He could not have guessed there should be so many sympathizers to the lost cause in the land of Lincoln, closing with Dixie, to which Mr. Kite himself sang and shed large tears in his mother's memory. When the curtain came down, he was tingling. Mr. Kite and Mr. Boyd should appear immediately after the first act after the interlude. The fiddling hillbillies that went before them were uncertainly funny and uncertainly musical. They were a sort of filler while the audience settled back into their seats, having gone out to smoke because smoking inside the theater had been banned on account of a recent fire in another nearby theater where 213 had been killed in Stampede and Inferno. The hillbillies were mocked and jeered, but they took it with Puritan forbearance, neither smiling nor frowning, but soberly and earnestly playing their instruments and stopping their feet to the music. They commanded attention in the end when one stood up and holding his fiddle in one hand, danced an old-time clogging. The crowd got to their feet and cheered him on. They had warmed the audience well for Mr. Kite and Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd veritably shoved Mr. Kite onto the stage, who looked like a man stage-struck, as he was, and that was the first of the many and effective laughs they got. The routine worked fast and smooth. Punchline, laugh, punchline, laugh. "'spin and punch and laugh. "'And when the fart came, it killed them. "'And Mr. Boyd must have done something to make this "'the best fart that he had ever had, "'for it was so long, so long, so juicy and smelly, "'that the balcony stood and cheered "'to see the swells on the front row main "'get out of their seats to escape it. "'They would make the news in the morning papers,' and get a better billing for them at once. Congratulated, back kissed by their peers as they went off stage, and the next act rolled out to collect the last splatters of their applause. Mr. Kite and Mr. Boyd were full of themselves. Mr. Boyd especially was smitten with the fawning attention of a bevy of scantily clad chorus girls who were waiting their turn to perform Mr. Kite returned to their dressing-room with a joy he had not felt in a very long time, if maybe never. Jubilant triumph that is rarely ever felt by anyone. And he opened the door and saw it. There, on the dressing-room table, reflected in the mirror before which Mr. Boyd primped, beside the pot of grease-paint and the rouge, the powder-puff and the make-up brush, There was the object of his mockery, the source, the engine, the cause, the fiend of the fart that humiliated him. A glass jar of sauerkraut, its lid beside it, flecks of sauerkraut upon the tabletop, a Polish brand, he observed. Mr. Kite, took two handfuls, and at first had no place to put them, and he hurried to find one. Fearing Mr. Boyd should appear, and holding fists of sauerkraut, opened drawers looked in the wardrobe for some place to stow his treasure. Just at the edge of Mr. Boyd's return, as the dressing room opened, Mr. Kite shoved the stringy-smelling stuff into a deep pocket of a costume for Hamlet, a sort of cloak, worn for a soliloquy on death. Mr. Boyd was still heady with the triumph of their performance and took no notice of Mr. Kite's guilty creeping. Mr. Boyd chatted gaily as he resealed his sauerkraut and sat to remove his makeup. They would party with the cast that night, he told. Mr. Kite, however, declined, having a headache. Mr. Boyd went off with two chorus girls and the hillbillies and the Amy twins to the Parker House uptown and drank until three in the morning. Often, certain impetuous moments in our lives occur so quickly and passionately that we cannot clearly remember what happened or explain why it happened. A rapture of lust, for example, or hysteria of anger. Intemperate words that sadly wound the one we love. And in the most mad of moments, a murder, a fatal accident of events, falling one on top of the other, but culminating in an act of permanent and unchangeable choice. His mind was made up, but he knew not wherefore and in the weeks to follow it would not be clear what had happened, but the whole of it was like some catastrophic earthquake in which the world becomes unrecognizable in an instant. Mr. Kite came to the dressing room before Mr. Boyd arrived and ate the sauerkraut he had stuffed in the hamlet's cloak. He wiped his hands with a cloak, and closed the wardrobe door and prepared himself for the act. Mr. Boyd came cheerfully and would embrace him, but Mr. Kite had turned his face for fear that he would smell the sauerkraut on his breath. Mr. Boyd hugged him nonetheless, happy as he has ever been in his life, he said. He took out his sauerkraut and his paint pots and prepared himself for the act. Now costumed, The two abided their entrance upon the stage, and as the hillbillies played and the crowd settled, Mr. Kite emitted a slow rectal leak at a high prolonged pitch, similar to that made by the narrow escape from the tight lips of a rubber balloon. Mr. Boyd soon noted the familiar smell, and he looked at Mr. Kite and saw he was more greenish than usual, and discomfited. And when they strode to the stage, Mr. Kite came clenching his buttocks as tightly as he could, but he struggled to suppress the tell-tale burps and blubbers of his bubbling intestinal brew. As he walked, his buttocks spit and spoke, small fizzing short toots, And muttering complaints, and Mr. Boyd, beginning to surmise the circumstance, amended himself and improvised upon it. He staged silences for the irrepressible emissions to embarrass Mr. Kite, heard like peeps as he stood tight assed and grimacing, heard like blabbering confessions. When he had to make a move to take his mark for the next joke, the audience enjoyed this antic noise-making even more than the previous night. And when Mr. Boyd let go his cannon at the end, Mr. Kite could not but reply with a full-throated battery, and it killed them all. While the applause covered the hurried exit of Mr. Kite who felt sick to his stomach, and ran out of the theater and into the alley behind it. Mr. Boyd, not knowing where he had gone, bowed to the exuberant audience alone on the stage. Meanwhile, Mr. Kite had dropped his trousers in the alley and let go a slobbery shit that offended the maker even as it offended anyone near. A group nearby that he had not noted, a gangly gang of ruffians, rascals who collected at the stage door to tease the chorus girls and cop whiskey from the stage manager, were deeply offended. "'Fuck me,' said one. "'You seen what this asshole just done?' "'Jesus,' said another. "'Mary, mother of God,' said the other, and made the sign of the cross.' Hey, Dad, said he, what you doing, you sick or something? And he approached Mr. Kite, who, unaccustomed to persons such as these, for though the frontier brought coarse companions, none looked so craven as these, thought that he would be attacked and stood up, and his pants fell to his ankles, and the crowd of taunting boys circled him and derided him. He let another soapy shit and fouled himself shamefully, and they hooted at him. He tried to turn, and he fell, and they kicked him on the ground. At that very moment, Mr. Boyd rescued him. Charging solitarily at the crowd of boys, flailing a stage-prop sword, he chased them out of the alley and into the front street. When he turned, Mr. Kite still lay face down and too weak or too ashamed to help himself. His brother helped to remove his trousers and helped to clean him of his soil, using the trousers wetted by water in a nearby rain barrel. Mr. Boyd moved Mr. Kite to a corner of the alley, left him, and shortly returned with his dressing gown for him to wear. "'and helped him to stand and put it on. "'He comforted him kindly, "'and as they returned to their dressing-room, "'Mr. Kite admitted in tears what he had done and why, "'and how he had come to believe that Mr. Boyd was not his brother "'and that he was jealous of him and ashamed of himself "'and did not want to be in the theatre any more.' Mr. Boyd held his brother and said in sacred quotation, Behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. Mr. Kite sobbed in his arms, and Mr. Boyd said, I think that applies somehow. They quit Chicago the next morning. They quit the stage. Never did they quit one another.
1: The people <speaking in Spanish>